Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is December 12th, 2020. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the transition between President Trump and President-elect Joe Biden. We will discuss how our adversaries view our democratic process and may take advantage during the transition period. We will also discuss the first 100 days of the Biden administration. Joining me for the podcast today is Rachel Washburn, Major General James Spider-Marks, Lieutenant General Bob Walsh, and our macro strategist, Peter Chur. I'm going to turn it over to Rachel to start the conversation. General Marks, now that we've officially entered a transitionary period between the outgoing Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration, can you discuss from a practical point of view, what is occurring within the executive branch and the various other departments at this time? And then uh, more broadly, how do our adversaries view this time? Inherent in a transitionary period, a time of political transition, there is risk. And, and certainly some of our adversaries don't have that same political risk as they don't have the same political turnover. Perhaps you can discuss how they view this time, um, our democratic process, and potentially ways to exploit a vulnerable time. Thanks, Rachel. I would say this transition is a little bit different from other transitions. Um, specifically, I think there are, there are three things we should be thinking about now to differentiate this transition from others. Um, number one is, if, if you look at the headlines, you see what the president is doing right now. The election is not final. I would say the election is final. We're just going through a stage of evaluation and some legal um, maneuverings. I won't get into that. But essentially, there is a period of transition that we are beginning. So we can put aside the fact that current President Trump is going to be successful as a result of this challenge and be uh, inaugurated for a second term. That's, that's not going to happen. So President-elect Biden and his team are working diligently, coming together. And I, from all accounts, the agency-to-agency coordination is beginning in earnest and is beginning to pick up speed and momentum. That's point number one. Point number two is his team, I think, is in place. I look at this from a national security perspective primarily. Obviously, all the cabinet members have yet to be determined, but the majority have been. From my perspective, the national security team is almost in place. And when I look at the national security team, it's far broader today, you know, definitionally, I would say, than it has been in the past. But we now have um, we, we, we now have a Department of Homeland Security. We have a Department of State. We have a national security advisor. We have yet to have a, a name completely vetted or put forward from the, uh, for the Department of Defense. However, that looks like it may be General Lloyd Austin, um, a classmate of mine, a very dear friend of mine, an incredibly capable soldier, and has worked at those very, very highest levels. So he is not naive to political pressures that are absolutely attendant to any, any one of these positions. It's really the second thing. And what you see within that is those that are a part of the national security apparatus have a job to do. They are focused on the absolute requirements that are up close, very personal, at very high risk, and business continues as usual, irrespective of all the choppiness that might exist as a part of this specific transition. So DOD, the national security apparatus, state, security council, all of those organizations are working hand in hand to make sure they can 
focus in on the challenge and bring the new team on board, what we call a right seat, left seat ride. So there's a legitimate transition. I would say the third thing is topic one is got to be during this transition from the national security perspective has got to be China. This president, this new presidential team that's coming in must embrace and get their arms around what the nuances are, what the near-term threats are, and what we want to try to do long-term with China. That's got to be topic number one. General Walsh, same question to you. How do our competitors view this time, specifically China, Iran, and Russia? First, uh, Rachel, thank you. And uh, uh, General Marks, I really liked his comments. And I just kind of comment a little bit on what he had kind of said, and I think it starts with this transition is different. He's right. This is a different, each transition is different, but there's no question that this was really kind of a defining election for the country, you know, as far as the, the political divisiveness that had kind of gone on running up to the election, during the election, and then even now with some of the contested uh, parts of the election still going on. So leadership really starts at the top. And General Marks and I have been in a lot of organizations, and you follow your leadership. And your leadership, starting with the president in this case, is a lot of that how this turn transition takes place. And so, yes, it's taking place, you know, once OMB made that decision that they were going to start supporting the Biden administration coming in and starting turnover, that's happening. But how well that's going is probably only those that are in that process can really speak to that and how well that's going. So that left seat, right seat, Um, there's good and there's others on how that goes. And it'll be interesting to see how that goes, considering that the two candidates in many cases came at things from two completely different sides. So is one left seat is sitting there listening to what the right seat is saying, you know, you're looking at that and going, well, I'm not buying into that policy. So a lot of that I think is, is though the turnover's going on and what's taking place, I think the more important thing that's probably going on is President-elect Biden's team was brought together for the reasons that he brought them together, and they know what they want to do. They're coalescing around their leader. They're using their backgrounds to formulate the policies that they'll follow, and they're putting that together. And if they get a lot of help in the process, that's gravy. If they don't, they know where they want to go. They'll start to put their policies together and, uh, and start to put together what their plan is. I think an interesting part to look at, though, is the Senate confirmation piece. I mean, that's a a card in here that we all have to look at because that can be very politically divisive also. And that confirmation process that it has to be appointees, presidential appointees have to be confirmed by the United States Senate. And with the Senate so evenly divided on this, certainly if a Republican party uh, maintains control of the Senate, you could see the impact they could have on some of the Biden appointees. So I think that's a wild card that has to be looked at as the run-up to these uh, elections that are going on in uh, uh, China, and then or in a run-up to the elections in uh, January in Georgia. Um, I would say that what what uh, General Mark said there was from a threat standpoint, front and center is China today. And I think with the run-up to the elections, the Biden administration was very clear on they viewed China as. Um, uh, or the Biden uh, uh, presidential election process talked about that and how he was going to be tough on China. And I think that's very clear. It's going to be hard for him to come off that 
But how he's hard on China is I think the piece that we'll deal with is I think his approach will be much more international, uh, much more bringing in partners to put pressure on China. Uh, and I think it'll go in that path. Russia, as far as mischief going on right now, they will probably take some advantage of what's going on. But I think most countries right now from a threat standpoint are hoping for increased, better relationships other than the Russians are looking for better relationships with the Biden administration. So probably less of a tendency to cause problems right now is they wait to work to come in to work with the new uh, Biden administration. Peter, from a macro perspective, how do you do view the transition and the risks that are inherent to it? So I think there's been a couple important things that seem very positive. One is Biden is clearly attempting to fill all the seats. I think one of the issues that existed under the Trump presidency, where there were a lot of appointments that didn't actually get filled. Maybe the senior person got filled, but not the people below them. So it looks like there's a very concerted effort to make sure all those seats are filled, which I think should allow the government to function. And then first and foremost, as we've seen so much in the past year, Treasury Secretary is a hugely important role. And announcing Yellen as the candidate is great because people have a lot of comfort in her. She's it would be shocking if she doesn't make it through the Senate confirmation process as she's already been approved by the Senate repeatedly. So I think that was a crucial element to kind of the state of the markets and the economy is we have a Treasury secretary who sh should easily get appointed, is very familiar with the Fed. I think she will be able to carry on this relationship we already saw between Mnuchin and the Fed where there's more work being done. And her background, we should never forget, is in um, employment economics. So she's probably the right person to bring in at this time, as I believe the administration is going to focus very domestically and impacts China, this K-shaped recovery. What are we going to do to stop that downward sloping leg of the K? And I think China has to be a part of that. I would say the one concern I have about some of the appointments that we're seeing is I think we strongly believe that China is a national security threat and how we deal with China and what that leads for jobs is important. And I think there is some risk that that changes and maybe we downplay it a little bit, that maybe it's harder to go multilateral than we believe. If you watch the news in Brexit this week, Europe still can't get Brexit right. So there's a lot going on. And I think a lot of the economic advisors that are close to the Biden administration are very, very good, but they tend to lean against tariffs and things. So it will be interesting to see how the administrative side from the economic helps or hurts with where we think they're going with China. That's really interesting, Peter. And certainly it was a trend we saw out of the Trump administration. that They were incredibly comfortable leveraging economic power to influence relationships around the globe. If that is something that uh, will be used less regularly or less aggressively in a Trump administration, uh, gentlemen, maybe you can discuss how we anticipate the other elements of power being leveraged, whether that be diplomatic, military, information, especially with regard to our relationship with China. We've also discussed how we expect a more multinational, multilateral approach from the Biden administration. And we've recently seen how Australia and China, how their dynamic has been challenged recently. Uh, and Australia certainly is one of our, our leading partners in the region. Uh, maybe also discuss how we'll lean on our allies moving forward. Yeah, I, I think, Rachel, that the, the Vice President-elect, uh, or President-elect Biden has come into this situation by saying he's going to try to gain more influence, more uh, pressure put on China by working with others and put more international pressure on the problem. Uh, 
And what I would look at is you have to understand China for who they are. Um, and they are always working in their best interest. When you talk about an America first policy, it's always China first policy. And the pressure that they are putting on other countries um, bilaterally or unilaterally that they're doing, you know, between Australia, you know, you could look at across Africa, the Middle East, different locations with their Belt Road Initiative. When things don't go their way, uh, they quickly use their leverage. And as we see them growing as a uh, economic power and a military power, we're seeing them use those tools much, much more than we have in the past with just their economic power. So in the case of Australia, you see how they ratcheted uh, things up very quickly with rhetoric, diplomacy, and also from an economic um, standpoint, putting tariffs and uh, trade restrictions on Australian goods. So for the, uh, the Biden administration to come in and go, hey, we're going to kind of take this international approach, um, realize that we've tried that a lot in the past in what seems to work well with countries like China, that we've seen communist countries that we deal, dealt with with the Soviet Union in the past is you've got to call them out for what they are and be tough on them. Now, can you do that from an uh, international standpoint? Every, for sure you can do that. But the key thing with that is, how do you coalesce nations around that when everybody else has their own interest on that? So the problem is when you've got two big players on the block, you know, the U.S. and China, the problem sometimes with the international approach is you kind of dumb the things down to kind of what that middle of the road is to make everybody happy. And that isn't going to work necessarily with China, that you've got to remain tough with them. And I think we can see that with Australia right now, how they're feeling the pain uh, and this is a case where um, the United States uh, partnering with Australia and others to put pressure back on China is an approach the Biden administration will be able to take. And we'll have to see how that will work, because we, we know for a fact China has not liked what the Trump administration has been doing with them and calling them out for what they are. And if you look across this, across the world, there's a lot of companies, countries now that have looked at China for what they are and are accepting the U.S. viewpoint on them. What General Walsh said um, really is the essence of how this new administration has to approach um, its foreign policy, its national security, uh, national security imperatives very broadly, China being the, the, I would say, the test case, top of stack, number one priority. <clears throat> the way I view it is there, there really are, around what General Walsh just said, four, four things this administration needs to do. Number one is we've got to accept and we have to coalesce a number of other nations around it, which is a big procedural effort that's been pushed aside over the course of the last administration, that China is a competitor, and but we have to, we have to be able to define what is non-negotiable in that competition. Because when you compete with another nation that's not going anywhere, you can't just have a winner or a loser. There's going to be elements of compromise that will exist. Both, both nations are sticking around. <clears throat> China is not at risk. The United States is not, is not at risk. The Communist Party in China is not at risk. Our constitutional integrity is not at risk. So what are the non-negotiables? How do we achieve those non-negotiables and make them crystal clear to the leadership in Beijing that these are areas where we will stand firm? And here are areas where, you know, guess what? We can have a conversation about that. And that's point number one. Point number two is we have to approach China and realize they're not fragile. 
and they're not easily influenced by external powers. They're on a long march. They, they have an objective to be the single global superpower. I mean, that's what they're about to do. That's what they want. To, and we have to make sure we don't lose ground in that competition. So don't treat them in any way like our influence is some way going to modify their behavior internally. We, we've thought that since Nixon's breakthrough in 72. And we've had it completely wrong. That's number two. Number three is don't equate Taiwan to Hong Kong. China's been messing around in Hong Kong. We don't like it. Though, you know, the, the residents and the natives of Hong Kong don't like it. The banking industry doesn't like it. Well, guess what? They signed an agreement. The Chinese and the Brits signed an agreement in 97. In 50 years, Hong Kong would be a part of China. Two systems, one nation. That's being tested right now. Beijing needs to know emphatically that they cannot test that, <coughs> excuse me, relative to Taipei. The United States has a Taiwan Relations Act. It is based on a degree of strategic ambiguity, which means how is the United States gonna respond? If China starts to push at Taipei, the United States has gotta make it crystal clear to the world that maybe the days of strategic ambiguity are over, but Beijing don't test us there. And the fourth thing, exactly what General Walsh said, made in China 2025. This is a rush toward IT dominance. China is invest investing trillions of dollars to achieve that goal in IT, artificial intelligence, semiconductors, the growth of what I would call cyber protocols, what looks right online, what doesn't look right. These are the four elements that the United States must hang its security policy around vis-a-vis -vis China. Where can cooperation exist with China? Great question. I would say the United States has to find cooperation militarily with China. China's military is incredibly advanced. It's expeditionary, it's modern, it's growing, um, it's blue water, it's over the horizon. Um, so I would say we can cooperate militarily, we, and we have history with that. General Walsh can speak to, to that in more detail. These are very strong naval engagements um, that have taken place, what we call Westpac's exercises that have take pla taken place over the years. China has been pushed aside over the course of the last couple of Westpac's and they've been modified, but we could reinitiate that type of engagement. We build trust as a result of that. Uh, number two is the United States also has entered into an agreement called the Quad with Australia, Japan, India, the United States, really organized around competing with China. China understands that. Because they understand that, that's an opportunity to have an engagement. Let's have a conversation about what does that Quad core element really look like? And how is that going to help adjust behaviors on both sides? So there, there can be some room for compromise. And then the other thing I would say specifically, we can figure out how to cooperate in places like Indonesia, elsewhere in South China Sea in terms of the trade. These are areas where the United States um, has either neglected its obligations, specifically in Indonesia, my belief. We've allowed Saudi Arabia and China to compete very aggressively in Indonesia world's largest Muslim nation, and the third largest democracy in the world, Indonesia, United States, India, Indonesia. We should have a very strong, unambiguous, irrevocable, very tight relationship with the leadership in Indonesia. That's an objective for us. We can make it clear to China. So when you make your objectives clear, all of a sudden you state, you state your intent. Now you start finding ground for engagement.
that's key in my mind. Hey, Rachel, if I could uh, just follow up on that piece, going back to your dime uh, framework that we, we discuss often and, and how we can find ways to work with China. I think the Biden administration will try to find those ways because I think they do want to tamp down some of the rhetoric that's been going on to find ways to engage. Um, I think any new administration wants to try a new approach. And over time, it either gets better or it gets worse. And we've seen with the Trump administration, it's gotten worse with more realism coming in for who China is. So I think when you start from a diplomacy standpoint, where can they find nuggets to work with? And that's what I think they'll look for. In the past, you saw us work very closely with China on counterterrorism. That's an area where we can find, you know, though it's not high on our list today, but it's an area where we can find what's work together on counterterrorism throughout the globe. Um, I think they've talked about uh, the Biden administration would like to come in and talk about human rights. China may not be comfortable about talking about human rights, certainly within China, but that's going to be put on the table on how are they handling their human rights in, in uh, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, Mongolia, what's going on in Tibet. Those kind of things uh, from a policy standpoint, we're going to see this new administration want to come in and put that on the table. But at least it gets conversations going. It gets uh, issues on the table that makes diplomacy front and center vice the military. So I think you'll see that. I think green energy will be one that they're going to want to talk about, which will get conversations going, which will allow that kind of uh, happen. On the military side, um, I probably would almost look at this from a standpoint of this is going to be a hard one. Uh, General Marks talked about wanting to do that, but it's going in obviously the opposite direction. If anything, we tried that before. We did a lot of unilateral engagement with the Chinese military, and all we really saw was they watched, they learned, they listened, they copied what we did. Very much so along the lines of what they've done with the economic side. So I don't think, unless there's clear direction from the administration from the very top, I don't think you're going to see within the Department of Defense and certainly within the Indo-PACOM region, not a whole lot of reaching out to share military secrets and work in those areas. Could there be some areas in humanitarian and defense operations? Could be to kind of open lines of communication up. But uh, we're probably at opposite ends right now when it comes to military engagement. And then I think on the, uh, the economy side is this is the interesting one. And Peter can talk to this, I think, better than anyone. These short-term gains. I mean, there's opportunities in China. We've seen this over the years of how companies and corporations can make money in China. But from a national security perspective, I think we've looked at that and said, where has this really taken us from a national security perspective? And I'd go right down the path of, you know, data and information and decision making today. That is the coin of the realm. It's data. How do you use data? It's 5G. It's artificial intelligence. And I would drive into all, a lot of that starts at the semiconductor area. And semiconductors allow us the speed and processing of information and data and sharing it. We have been way in front of the Chinese in that area. This is an area in Made in China 2025, very clear President Xi Jinping put that out there that he wanted to dominate in that area and bring that into China. And he's taken a lot of, you know, we heard the uh, um, a director of intelligence talk about rob, replicate, and replace. We've seen that over and over again in the tech industry to our disadvantage, and that's the path they've kind of gone down. So when it comes to the economy, 
my hopes would be the Biden administration wants to look at this from a national security perspective and look at what are those areas that we still have to play a hard line on China so they don't gain the secrets and put us in second place where we might be in first place today. Peter, certainly you have some really interesting insights on how technology has played its part in challenging the relationship between the United States and China. A few years ago, with the recognition of how emerging technologies with military application really did play a part in shifting the dynamic between the United States and China, forecasting out what resources, what technologies are going to be influential in the future when it comes to competition with China. And then finally, certainly cannot ignore the pandemic when it comes to the dynamic between the United States and China. I anticipate their One Belt, One Road initiative, relationships that China does and influence they do have around the globe will play a part in the deployment of a vaccine in a response to the pandemic. Maybe you can discuss how the pandemic and COVID-19 is going to impact the policy and the messaging around our relationship with China in the coming months and year. Hey, Rachel, I think that question about the vaccine is actually really important. And it ties even to some of the stuff General Walsh was just talking about, right? He was talking more about the tech side of things, but let's take it all the way down. There must be a hundred brands of these little blue masks. I check them all. And every single brand is still made in China. So our baseline of defense against the virus is still produced in another country. We still aren't able to get um, N95 masks made here. So I think the other element of how we deal with China, it's there's this, the internet, the 5G, but I think at the bottom end is a basic. What if we are moving towards a world where biological threats are a bigger concern to us, where things like pandemics might happen with more frequency? How do we bring this back on shore when we look at rising healthcare costs? It's expensive, but we offshore most of it. So I, I think that's going to be another real area where there is going to be friction that we need the base components made here. We need the ability to produce more. We need our vaccines. We need to be able to distribute them. Um, so I think that is going to be a part of this whole discussion with China is we have at the one side, they're clearly an incredible resource to us in terms of the supply chain. We use them and we use them for all sorts of products. And some of those are probably fine to use. Some of those may have national security risks. So I think both at the tech side, but even anything healthcare, medical, there's got to be a greater thought. Are we in position to be independent enough or at least make sure that those facilities, those jobs are occurring in countries that we have incredibly close and stable relationships with? So I, I think that whole vaccine is really that second leg of how we think about China's national security. And then I think we're going to have to think, what's the cost of that? Some of it could be borne by the government. It's Medicaid, things like that. So we're already spending U.S. taxpayer money. I think the trickier part is going to be as we try and build some re supply chains over here, as we look at shifting some stuff away from China or putting pressure on China to conform to, you know, better pollution controls, etc. There might be some short term profit problems for some companies, right? It's probably going to cost some companies. And I think in many ways, the U.S. for the past decade or longer has not shown a great willingness to bear short term problems for longer term gains, right? It's, you know, we all talk about China's ability to think the long term and ours seems in some ways to add the other way. So I think there's going to be a lot of tough discussions. I think we're going to need a lot of 
government support to encourage people to do the right thing. Though I think one thing that we haven't talked about yet today, but I do think is important is as we see ESG investing play a bigger role, I suspect that ESG investing is going to become more and more sophisticated and it's going to look beyond, you know, some of the initial one was corporate boards and some relatively simple metrics. I think as they dig deeper, they're really going to look into what does your supply chain look like and not just from how robust it is, but is there pollution occurring that's not being captured? Are there violations that would not be condoned here. So I think ESG investors are going to wind up putting pressure on corporations to do, quote unquote, the right thing. And that works best when doing the right thing rewards your share price, right? That, there's going to be nothing that makes CEOs, CFOs react faster than if they think it helps their share price. So I think you're going to see some pressure from that point, which will be interesting. Um, the biggest concern, I think, from everything I've heard is I've heard a lot of talk, talk, talk. And I am a little bit concerned that China is particularly good at taking advantage of talk, talk, talk while they take action, action, action. And I, I do want this not to kind of slip. It felt we can all argue whether Trump did some of the right things or wrong things. But I think between what Trump did, the virus, we're at a very aware moment of what it is like to deal with China. And I think we can shape that but I think we're going to have to move aggressively and quickly and figure out what's the right way to shape. So we benefit as much as possible and continue with China where they serve us as well as us serving them. You know, what Peter just described is the, I mean, that's a classic example of the Faustian bargain. What am I going to give up now? What can I, what can I gain now? And irrespective of what the cost may be down the road. And that's truly the, that defines the competition with China. Uh, China's got a longer perspective. We, we tend to engage on a quarterly basis. We've discussed that forever, and Peter just laid it out in, in perfect detail. You know, the national security kind of apparatus now is morphing, again, to embrace the realities as laid out by Peter. I mean, within that discussion of national security, you've got to include the Department of Commerce. You've got to include the Treasury Department. You've got to include Health and Human Services. Um, those are going to be critical as we define this new level of competition. The new Cold War um, is in front of us. We've got a pandemic, which is really a weapon of math, mass destruction. How are we going to compete against that? We've got persistent stare and continual forms of competition and conflict online. It's going to happen all the time. Space is where all of that's going to take place. And we've got challenges with other nations and how do we bring them in to help kind of build the team so we can coalesce around all that. I love what Peter said about talk, talk, talk relative to action, action, action. I mean, China right now is looking at this Biden, the new Biden administration, which has said we're going to be more inclusive. It's all about building a team, creating the right narrative, and then building the team around it. That's going to take time. China in the interim is going to be marching along its path. Rachel, I think um, if I could lean into this too, is you mentioned earlier the Belt Road Initiative. And if you take a look at where China is engaged around the globe, it again comes back to what's in the best interest of China. It's places where there's natural resources, it's places where they can come in with their debt diplomacy and gain advantage. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out, where the Trump administration has been more with the vaccines and more America first approach. Let's take care of ourselves. China is ready to move forward very quickly with soft power and repair its reputation or image globally with what went on with the virus starting in China. So they're ready to move forward. We see them doing vaccinations in the UAE. 
we see them very closely linked in Morocco and free vaccinations being promised to the people there. So we can see the soft power of diplomacy going to be rapidly used by China to project its image across the globe. We don't. We see them going into those areas where they see the Belt Road Initiative being to their advantage. So this is going to play out on how both the U.S. is viewed in the larger picture of the pandemic and how China comes out of this. And China certainly wants to repair its image and use this soft power in the way they've learned to do so well in the past. Yeah, you know, Bob, what General Walsh just described um, is a real stark comparison between. U.S. forms of diplomacy and China's form of diplomacy. The U.S. sets preconditions a priori for engagement, right? We tend to walk into other nations and say, we want to be here for you. However, up front, you need to modify X, Y, Z, internal to your, we, we want to want you, this nation, your leadership, to modify your behavior and start to embrace these non-negotiables in terms of how this United States Democratic Republic works. Chinese do it on the back end. They come in, they've got diplomacy, debt diplomacy, what's now called wolf warrior diplomacy, pretty aggressive, but up front they state, we're, we're here for you. The hitch is down the road. Once you start getting in with the Chinese, the debt diplomacy is you are beholden to them in perpetuity. You have a long-term relationship, entirely different approach toward how diplomacy is used, some would say effectively or ineffectively, relative to the United States and China. We started off this call discussing how the first call Biden's gonna make is gonna be to President Xi. General Marks, General Walsh, who's gonna be on the receiving end of the second and third calls? And, and really, how is that gonna inform the first 100 days of policy out of the Biden administration? Um, I would say to, in the Pacific, to Japan, um, and then secondarily, to um, our, our strongest relationship we have in Europe has been with uh, Great Britain. And so I would say it's gotta, it's gotta be to Boris Johnson um, because we have, to, we, we have to embrace the challenges of our largest trading partner and someone with whom we have this incredible historical relationship in terms of countering uh, communism and the growth of autocratic regimes. General Walsh. Yeah, very close to what General Mark said. In the Pacific, I would say if we're, you know, if China is the main effort that we'd look at, I would say certainly our partners with Japan and Australia. I mean, they are really looking to the U.S. for leadership because they've stepped forward in a lot of ways supporting the U.S. Uh, policy uh, countering China's growth. They're kind of out on islands if we don't stay close to them. So I think first reaching out to those two um, I think South Korea is another one that the focus has really been away from North Korea. Uh, and I think the coming and kind of bridge some of that relationships between South Korea and Japan. The Biden administration has talked about that in the run up to the elections. I think that's important. And then the other one I think is, is you look at the, um, uh, Vice President Biden as he talked about coming up to the elections. He still talked a lot about Russia as Russia as a, a problem. So I think um, the Biden administration will be very focused also on building relationships uh, with the UK and also within the greater NATO at large. I think that's going to be very important. I think Russia will probably um, take uh, more bandwidth from the Biden administration than maybe the Trump administration. So that will include, uh, if you're going to counter 
uh, Russia is influence across the globe. You've got to work with your partners and that's NATO and certainly uh, countries like the UK. Can, can I have an alibi? General Walsh just tweaked something in my mind. And we've got to include India in that list of initial conversations for a whole bunch of obvious reasons, a counter, counterbalance to China. Uh, again, uh, this amazingly huge democracy with a, a host of challenges um, and it's Intellectual firepower is phenomenal, and we realize that. We've got to embrace India. Yeah. And I think Peter could add to this, too, the opportunity in India. You know, we see economic opportunities in China, but places like India and uh, Indonesia is huge opportunities if we want to look at this from a diplomacy standpoint, but an economic standpoint. Yeah, I think all of those make sense. What I'd actually like to see him also do, though, is reach out to some of the industry groups. I'd like to see him reach out to big tech, to maybe the banks, to the pharmaceutical companies. If you think back during this crisis, I think some of the best press conferences we had were industry leaders and CEOs were there explaining how they were helping in the fight against the pandemic. And I think that's something we should continue to embrace. I do believe that as we move to stimulus spending, there should be public-private things so that there is more private economic thought goes into how we spend our money. I think we will get much better leverage from that. So I would like to see some of the things that I do think were embraced a little bit more by President Trump continue with the Biden administration and really encourage that interaction between these high-level CEOs who are going to be an incredible important part of making anything we do successful. Um, so I'd like to see that. I agree with India. I think India is going to be a huge opportunity. And we didn't really get to touch on it in this today, but I think more and more as we move towards, you know, green energy and things, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, Rachel, is things like the rare earths that go into that. There is going to be competition for those. And we need to make sure that the countries that produce those are kind of getting aligned with us as much as possible. Um, so I think there'll be some neat calls to be made, but I would really like to see him embrace corporate America because I think it really helped through everything we saw in the pandemic. Thank you so much, Peter, Major General Marks, Lieutenant General Walsh, and Rachel for your contributions to this conversation. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you have an interest in engaging with our geopolitical and macro strategy team directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Thank you so much for your time. Again, I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.